So for now, I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy is one of the three pastoral epistles, so named because Paul is writing them to two pastors, Timothy and Titus, to instruct them in the governing and emphasis of the church. And of the many things that are dealt with in these chapters, prayer, evangelism, teaching, ministry, officers of the church are found here in perhaps the greatest detail in the Bible. And the passage we're going to look at this morning is 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 13, in which Paul deals directly with the office of deacon. So if you would please give attention to the Word of God, because the Word of God is completely inerrant. The Word of God is completely sufficient. And the Word of God is completely authoritative. 1 Timothy 3, beginning at verse 8. Deacons likewise must be dignified. Not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask this morning that you would fill our hearts with a love for the Savior from your word. All of the blessings that the Lord Jesus Christ gives to us, we focus this morning, Lord, on his gift to the church of deacons. And so we ask this morning that as we think about the church, as we think about service, as we think about deacons, that we would not take our eyes off Jesus. For He is the one who truly serves His people. He is the one who is worthy of glory. This we pray in Christ's precious name. And all God's people said, Amen. Today we have an important event in the life of our church. A process that began almost one year ago is reaching fulfillment. We are going to recognize and ordain men as deacons. I say recognize because it is the Lord who makes men deacons. And then the church sees this through its process of nominating, training, and elected. I say ordaining because we will set these men apart for the work of deacon, serving the church. 
The office of deacon is one of service. That's what the word deacon means. And so we are going to look at a passage this morning in which Paul describes the service of the deacons in three ways. First, Paul shows us how they are ready for service. And then secondly, Paul shows us how they are equipped for service. And then finally, Paul shows us how they are rewarded for service. Ready, equipped, and rewarded. Let's begin then by looking at how deacons are ready for service. To say that they are ready means that they are qualified by God. You will notice at the beginning of our passage that Paul begins his description of deacons with their character. Now, when we think of qualifications for a certain role, we often think of skills. Think about if you have ever drafted for yourself or someone a resume. When you prepare a resume, you list all of your experiences. You list your competencies. You list your abilities. But you do not often list your character. You don't hand in a resume for an engineering job and say, I'm very kind to my wife. I'm very patient with my children. I let people merge with me in front of me in line on I-10. We don't say what our character is. We list what software we know how to use and what accomplishments we have achieved. Now, this is also true now for school applications. You know, back in my day, you only had to fill out an application to get into a college. And when you did that, they were short. You filled in some biographical information and you wrote an essay. Now, it's a whole book you have to fill out with everything about you and every club you've been in and everything you've been able to do and everything you want to do and everything your parents have done and everything your sister has done and everything your dog has done. You put everything out there. And it's not just college anymore. If you want to go to a private school, a high school, or a junior high, or even a grade school, you know, I still don't know how they get three and four-year-olds to fill out these extensive applications for pre-K. Everywhere you go, we list what we're good at. Because, you see, we are trained to think that what is important is what we bring to the table. What we are able to do. But when God chooses men, when he chooses men for his church, he begins with what kind of man he has made. And if we think about this, this fits perfectly with our doctrine of salvation. Because we are who we are by God's grace. It's not what we have done that causes God to take notice of us, to set his love upon us, and to bring us into his family. No, no, no. Apart from the grace of God, we are sinners. We are selfish. We are rebellious. We are unkind. We may hide it sometimes better than others. But apart from God, we are lost sinners. But when God, 
by His grace, gives us a new life and a new heart, we are renewed in the image of Jesus. Take that to heart. I think some of the greatest words in all of the Bible are these two words, but God. It gives hope to the hopeless. It gives life to the lifeless. It gives encouragement to the downcast. And so it would make sense that God would want the leaders in his church to possess the character of Jesus, to look like Jesus, to follow after Jesus. And God would prepare them by working that in them, that he would bring men to himself and that he would mold them by his spirit and his word into the image of Christ. God wants deacons to be living examples of Christ serving his people. And that's why our passage this morning begins in verse 8, not with a list of requirements or skills, but of characters. Paul says, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. He starts by giving a general description. They are dignified. Now, we may hear that word and have a misconception. Dignified here for Paul does not mean someone who is prim and proper and dressed to the nines, whose tie is perfectly tied, whose cufflinks are shiny, whose shoes are buffed. No. What it means is someone who has nothing that can be laid to their account as a charge. Someone who is blameless, as it were. Someone who has a reputation before others. That's what Paul means. These men, these leaders, are to be known for their character. And then he begins to describe it in specifics, three specifics. He says, first, they must not be double-tongued. Second, they must not be addicted to much wine. And third, they must not be greedy for dishonest gain. And all of these describe a man who is self-controlled. That is, he's not given to sin. He's not a slave to sin. He's under the power and authority of God. And that has given him control in his life. First, we see that a man is to be self-controlled in speech. He's not to be double-tongued. And what that means is someone who says one thing to one person and the opposite to another person. Someone who's not above lying just simply to get ahead. Someone for whom the truth is not always on their lips. And you can see how this is, well, first of all, it's a timeless character quality. But can you also see how this is so desperately needed in the church today? Because if it's one thing that might describe our society, it's being double-tongued. People lie all the time. They'll lie right to your face. They'll lie online. They'll lie to their boss. You know, back in my day, you would never put an obvious and provable lie on your resume. You wouldn't say you graduated from a school that you never attended. Maybe it was because we thought we would get caught. But now that happens all the time. It happens to people, regular people. It happens to celebrities. It happens to politicians. 
People aren't known for their word. But Paul says to be a deacon, your word is your bond. When a deacon says to you, I will take care of that, you can take it to the bank. When a deacon says, we need to do this service now, you can trust him that it's going to be done and he's going to accomplish it. It's a character, a characteristic of the deacon. The second way in which deacons are to be self-controlled is in life. Paul puts it this way, they are not to be addicted to much wine. Now you have to understand, Paul is giving us an illustration here. So if you're a minor sitting here, you don't get to say, well, I'm glad Paul can't criticize me. I've never had a drink in my life. And you can't say, you know, I hate the taste of alcohol, so I'm in good stead here. No, Paul is just giving you an illustration. If you lose control of your life by giving it over to wine, you don't have the kind of character that's needed to be a deacon. But wine may not be your addiction. It could be other illegal substances. It could be work. You could be addicted to work and let your family go by the wayside and your faith go by the wayside. There's another addiction that is rampant in our society. And this is where, even though this is a sermon for deacons, I want the young people to listen up. The young generation are addicted to video games and pleasure. They are addicted to anything that gives them pleasure. They can't be bothered to work hard. It could be the latte they have to have every day. Or it could be the Netflix they have to watch. Or it could be the game they have to play. There are so many ways in our society that we can lose control of our life by not being self-controlled. The final thing that Paul describes is those who do not have self-control with money. A deacon must have self-control with money. He cannot be greedy for dishonest gain. Now, notice what Paul says. He doesn't say a deacon can't be someone with money. He doesn't say a deacon can't be someone who receives honest gain. No, he's very particular here. It's dishonest gain. You know, the Bible doesn't say... That money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. And you see, if a, if a man is given to greed, if he always wants more, and that causes him to ruin friendships, and to neglect his wife, and to look down on his children, then this man does not have the character necessary to lead Christ's church. Well, we often think, of deacons as the practical leaders. Often it's said that the main difference between deacons and elders is that deacons don't need to be able to teach. And so we think that the deacons are the ones who make things run at the church smoothly. They're the handy guys. They know what they're doing. You would look at me and you'd say, Fred would never be a deacon. Maybe his wife but not him. But you see, that's a wrong view of the diaconate. And Paul makes that clear to us in verse 9. He says, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Paul surprises us here by emphasizing deacons' knowledge of the faith. And he gives us two categories of this. Holding the mystery of the faith 
and having a clean conscience. These are clearly intellectual categories. Now, it doesn't mean that every deacon needs to be a seminary professor. But they must know the historic Christian faith. And there's actually an interesting parallel here that Paul gives to us. He uses this same kind of language to describe Timothy, the pastor, in the first chapter of this book. If you look with me at chapter 1, in verse 19, he's giving Timothy a charge. And he tells Timothy, you must hold the faith and have a good conscience. And the reason is, is those who reject this have made shipwreck of the faith. And so the leaders in Christ's church need to know the faith. They need to love the truth of God's word. And they need to have a clear conscience. Now what does that mean? When Paul says they must hold the mystery of the faith, the first thing we see is, it is a present tense verb. It doesn't mean that someday they'll learn more about the faith. No, it doesn't even mean they knew things in the past, but now they've gotten busy and they've forgotten it. No, it means right now they are holding the mystery of the faith. Now, when we hear that, we are confused. Because when we hear the word mystery, we think it is something that is unknowable. We think of like the mystery of how Stonehenge got set up. Or we think of a mystery novel or film, a whodunit, that we don't know what's happened. But that's not how Paul uses the word mystery throughout his letters. No, the word mystery here means a truth that God had not fully revealed in the past, but now is completely revealed to us so that we may know it. It means the truth that was present in shadows and types in the Old Testament. The Trinity, the Incarnation, the Substitutionary Atonement, the Resurrection, the New Heavens and New Earth are described in great and vivid detail in the New Testament. And so now it is a mystery that has been revealed to us. And deacons are to be men who know the basics and the significant portions of the Christian faith. They are to know it. But they're also to be men who have a clear conscience. Now, what does that mean? It means that a man has a clear conscience before God. He knows his sins are forgiven, not because of what he's done, but because of what Jesus has done. And he has embraced Jesus Christ by faith. He has come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, and his sins no longer enslave him. They no longer plague his conscience in the sense that he believes he cannot be reconciled to God. He knows that Jesus has made the way. And so his conscience is clear. But just because God has made these men ready for service does not mean they don't need to be equipped for service. And so we come to our second point this morning. That deacons are men who are equipped for service. Now, I want you to think for a moment about a natural athlete. Does a natural athlete train? Of course he does. 
As a matter of fact, the best natural athletes spend the most time training to hone their skill. Or think of a, a natural speaker. Someone who knows how to talk to people and to be heard and to get a point across. That man still needs to hone his skill. He needs to be trained to speak, to bring out the best in his words and his phrases and his illustrations. You know, I saw earlier this week that a man doesn't find his voice preaching until he has preached several hundred sermons. And I thought to myself that this month marks 17 full years that I have been here at Christ Church. And so I haven't counted them all up. I probably need to do that someday or make someone help me do that. I've probably preached a thousand sermons. So, so I think I've found my voice. I've been doing this. And, and I, I think I understand this because this week during Vacation Bible School, one of our members came in and he came up to me and he said, I read this devotional article that you wrote for Table Talk. I said, that's interesting. And he said, yeah, and I read the whole thing in your voice in my head. And of course, everyone, including my wife, laughed at that. But you see, we develop that kind of skill. Think about a natural cook or chef. They still want to develop their skill. They look at recipe books. They watch uh, chefs. They try to have some training. They learn because they want to be the best cook they can possibly be. And one of the important things about training for the athlete, for the speaker, for the cook, is that training teaches us to be humble. The definition of training is we don't know everything that we should know. We're not as good at everything as we need to be. And so we need to learn. Training reminds us we need to learn. Think about even when you first learned to drive. If you had excellent hand-eye coordination and you could turn the wheel and you knew how to press the gas and the brake, that was one thing. But one of the most important things about driving is being trained to think defensively. Right? As you're driving, you drive up and you say, I know there's a stop sign there, but I'm not sure if they're going to stop at it. I better pay attention and slow down. I know there's someone in the lane next to me, and they're supposed to put their blinker on and have plenty of time to come in front of me, but they may just swerve in front of me. And so we're trained by the practice of driving. And Paul takes this principle and he applies it to leadership in the church. He says, for deacons, let them be tested first. And the word here for tested means to be proven or to be shown as having this ability. It is drawing a conclusion based on an examination. For example, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, he tells Christians to test everything. And to hold to what is good. Same word. Peter in 1 Peter 1. Describes how gold. Is tested. By fire. And so the, the impurities. Are burned away. And that is what. We do here. At Christ Church. You may have wondered. Why it has taken so long. To get to this day. From the days of nominations for officers. You see, we are not hasty ordaining men. 
Paul warns us later in this book, in chapter 5, to not hastily lay hands on anyone. So there is a significant period of training. There are months of classes these men go through. There is a great amount of reading that they undertake. There are homework assignments that they must prepare. There are discussions that we have about the Word of God. And then there are both written and oral examinations. Examinations about theology, examinations about the Bible, examinations about ministry and about their family. And we do that first, just as Paul says. It's first both in time and in priority. Now, does that mean each of these men is perfect? No. Does that mean they know more than anyone else who is not a deacon? No. But what it does mean is that we take the time to see how God has equipped them for this service. As deacons serve Jesus' people here, they must have an understanding of the Bible and the faith in order to serve. This is the church, Jesus' body. It's not like any other organization. So we must make sure that they are trained for this service. And Paul also describes this equipping in a practical way. He tells us here in verses 11 and 12 that the deacons' wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. You see, it's important for a man to be trained for service in Christ's church. But that's not sufficient. A man must show the qualities God has given him in his service to the church. After all, if a man is going to be in the office of service, we need to know if he can serve. So Paul then begins to describe the life experience of these men in verse 11. And it shouldn't surprise us that the arena to see such service is the family. There is a parallel between the household of God and the household. And the household is also the place where real life can be seen. If you want to know a man, See what he's like with his wife and his children. Paul describes to us what their wives should be like. Why? Well, first, because if a man is going to lead others in the church in ministry, we need to see how he leads his wife. This is an important point. The office of deacon is one of service, but it also has real authority. Deacons are not to do all the work of the church. They are to lead the congregation in the work so that all can have the benefit of ministering to others. So we look to see how the man leads and equips his wife. Is she godly? Does she support him? This is important. And secondly... We need to know this because wives are involved in the work of the deacon. Deacons are called to minister to the hurting, 
to those experiencing shortage, to those who have needs. And often they are women. And it is a wise church that involves women in that ministry. And what better way to help the deacons than with their wives? Paul also describes their children. Not so much the children themselves, but the way that the man leads them. He says that the deacon is to manage his children and his own households well. Now, when we think of manage, again, this is a word that I think has a different connotation for us today. We think of manipulation. We think of just making sure there are no problems. That no one can be blamed. That things will go smoothly. But that's not how Paul uses this. The word manage means to lead, to direct, to have authority over someone. And the best way to see how men will lead is to look at their home. Are their children exasperated with them? Are their children out of control? Or are their children willing to help? Are they eager to serve? This is a practical and crucial way to understand deacons. They must be men of godly character. They must be men who know God's word. And they must also be men who live out that character and that knowledge. Paul then concludes this section with our third point. By describing the reward for service. We have to understand that a man does not become a deacon in order to gain things. Reward here is not a synonym for compensation. Now, we all know people, perhaps you are one of the people, who work a job solely to get the paycheck at the end of the week. You're not really concerned about the company. You don't really buy into the mission of the organization. But you need a job. You need to support your family. And so what you're looking for is to be compensated. That's not what Paul is describing here. This is rather, I think, an analogy to the Christian life. We don't believe in Jesus in order to get the reward of heaven. No, we believe in Jesus to be reconciled with God, and to be with Jesus. Heaven is a reward that we get in addition. We're not being compensated for our faith. And so similarly here, Paul says, let those, for those who serve well as deacons, gain a good standing for themselves. That's the first reward he describes. Now what do they do to do this? What Paul does something interesting here. What they do to get this good standing is they deacon well. They're good at their deaconing. Because that's what the word serve well as deacons means in the Greek. Paul has taken a noun, deacon, and turned it into a verb, deaconing. And he says if you do that well, then you will gain a good standing for yourself. The fundamental meaning for being a deacon is to serve. It is to minister in the church. Now, that doesn't mean that they get awards for deaconing. 
They're true servants. You may have noticed, and I can guarantee you, that there will not be a plaque in our lobby that says Deacon of the Month. The deacon who has set up the most chairs this month is... There's no bonuses for deacons. They serve. And so what do they receive? They receive standing. Now, the word here is very interesting. It actually means a step. And you can see the meaning to go from a step to go to a stage of progress. We talk about going up steps in a company to get promotions or going up steps in training to have more obligations. That's what the word here means. It's recognition for their service. Now, you may think that that would be a pat on the back from congregants or an award or maybe even a compliment from the pastor. But that's not what Paul means here, I believe. I believe it refers to the standing that the Lord gives them. Now, does that mean they have some special place in heaven? No. But I think Paul is referring to what Jesus has already said in Matthew 25, when he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, I ask you this. Who would rather have a plaque or a praise or a bonus rather than the acknowledgement from Jesus Christ that you have served him well. There is no better standing that you can have. But the second reward that they can receive is confidence. Confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And we've seen this word confidence before in other contexts. It means boldness. It means courage. It means assurance. What Paul is saying here, is that by serving, these men can see the Spirit's work in their life. Have you ever wondered how you could tell if the Holy Spirit is changing you and making you more like Jesus? Paul is saying that a sure sign of that is when you start acting like Jesus, when you start serving like Jesus. Now, this is also true of every Christian we can be assured of our testimony when we see evidence of the Spirit's work in our lives. But what a blessing it is for men whose calling is to serve. Their service is not only assuring, but it is a testimony to the world of what Jesus does in the lives of his people. Deacons are an important part in the life of the church. That is why Jesus has given them to the church. He's made them ready for service. He's equipped them for service. And he rewards them for their service. Rejoice with me in knowing that Jesus loves us so much that he gives us Deacons. Let's pray.